Hello, I'm Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brain Spike Back. On this podcast, we discuss everything related to psychology, technology and society. We can all relate to feeling lonely at times, but unfortunately for younger generations, this is a sensation that is becoming increasingly common. According to a survey conducted by Young Women's Trust in the UK, one in four 18 to 30 year olds report feeling isolated compared to one in 10 older people aged 64 to 72. And the US is not immune to this either. According to research by YoungGov, millennials are the loneliest generation today in the US. So why are younger generations overcome with such an overwhelming sense of loneliness? It may come as no surprise that increased access to technology and social media has been labeled a culprit. In this episode, we will explore the connection between technology and loneliness, and you will learn how technology can impact our sense of loneliness, what role social media plays, and how its effects can be reduced. To get a better understanding of this topic, we'll be speaking with two experts. My first guest is the Director of Research at Hope Lab, a social innovation lab focused on designing science-based technologies to improve the health and well-being of teens and young adults, Dr. Danielle Ramo. In addition to Dr. Ramo, we will be joined by a clinical psychologist and the founder of Digital Citizen Academy, a program created to help educate parents and children about the proper use of technology and the repercussions that technology may have, Dr. Lisa Stroman. And for our Weird Wide Web feature, where we highlight a bizarre story from the world of tech, we have a story about AI-generated headshots putting stock image companies on edge. Would you be able to start off, Lisa, by telling us a little bit about yourself and your experience with loneliness and technology in this field? And then, Danielle, would you be able to do the same, please? Certainly. So I'm Dr. Lisa Stroman. I'm a clinical psychologist and an attorney and someone who has worked in the area of technology and its interface with psychology for the last 15 years. I started originally as someone who worked at the FBI in the profiling division. And while I was there, I had the fortunate and unfortunate experience to be in this profiling unit when Columbine happened. And so I was literally like in the face of the FBI, CIA, NSA, these amazing Uh, minds that are coming together on technology way before we had smartphones and iPads and technology released, coming together to look at what at the time was about 18 bankers boxes full of content that these two young men had produced and had uh, written up about the severe amount of hurt and pain and loneliness and anger that they were clearly feeling. And at that time, I didn't have kids yet. And I was um, a graduate student getting my PhD. And I literally thought somebody has to stand up for these kids and for our society and understand how we are interfacing with this technology that is coming. And so I have spent the last 15 years looking at um, how do we manage that, again, technology burden and gift at the same time, and recognize that our psychology must also trend with that technology advance and um, and be a leader and, and somebody in that space, um, along with everyone else that's trying to really help us with how it's making us feel and interact with one another. Thank you. And Danielle, would you be able to do the same, please? 
Sure. Um, my name is Danielle Ramo. I am a clinical psychologist as well, and I study teen health and emotional well-being. I started out uh, as research faculty at UC San Francisco in San Francisco, and I led a lab called the Research and Addiction and Digital Intervention Lab, where we look primarily at how to help young people make positive health behavior changes in their lives and to do so using technology that is so well integrated into their lives. I agree that technology provides a lot of problems in society, but also a lot of hope. And I wanted to be able to deliver interventions that we know work to support the health and well-being of young people to do so through media that is deeply embedded in their everyday lives. So I have run a number of uh, NIH-funded clinical trials evaluating using social media to help young people quit smoking cigarettes, reduce heavy drinking, and address mental health problems that are becoming more and more pervasive in our society among young people. I'm now, as of a year ago, director of research at Hope Lab in San Francisco. We're a social innovation lab that uses technology to deliver science-backed tools to support adolescent health. And right now, we're working specifically on a solution to address loneliness among college students. So that's how we're directly interfacing with the area of loneliness right now. It sounds like I've got two of the best possible experts I could have on. You sound very, um, yeah, very, very prepared for this, <laughs> both of you. To give you a, um, a little bit of background on, on what inspired me to to do this subject, uh, maybe a year or so ago, I found, came across an article from Vice, which was came out in 2012, and it said that younger generations feel a greater sense of loneliness than older generations. So it seems that like between 18 to 30 year olds have a greater sense of loneliness than those who are like 65 or above. And to me, that just baffles me because that just seems so counterintuitive to what we'd expect from society and what what we hear so much of. And I just I can't even begin to fathom how young people feel so alone and isolated. Nobody should feel alone. And I'm not saying that like, oh, once you reach a certain age, it becomes acceptable. That's, that's, we should be trying to tackle loneliness regardless of age. But the fact that potentially what we see in society as one of the most sociable groups, you, you might assume, is feeling the loneliness, there's something really going wrong here. And I don't want to point to technology and say this is the reason, but it seems that it comes up a lot in the headlines. You constantly see um, stories about how social media impacts our psychology and impacts depression or anxiety or, or maybe drives us to compare our lives with others. And I really wanted to get a better understanding to really focus on why they feel so lonely and what role technology is playing in this. So that's why I, I reached out to, to both of you and I would love to get your opinion on, on why do you think younger generations feel lonelier than older generations in this moment in time? Lisa, would you be able to answer that for us or give us your, your thoughts on that and then Danielle after? Sure. I think from a standpoint of, of being in a clinical practice, working with teenagers all the way up to adults, I think that what you're talking about is purely, it's accurate to such a high level. And when I look at, again, what you're saying is you don't want to make the assumption that it's technology. But what I would tell you is that the difference of how we create and sustain relationships has shifted. And so when we look at the older generation who has probably less quantity of relationships, but more in-depth quality in relationships. So 
those relationships that that started out tend to be um, more based on proximity. They tend to be closer in um, ethical, moral background, right? Like that it's whether through it's through church or through schools or things like that. But pre-technology or social media connection, right? It was always where you were spending time and having place with one another um, in, in real time. And I think that the authenticity of those relationships are much deeper and closer um, in my experience and as a clinical psychologist than these, this younger generation who by all means are more social in many ways. And, and I can't wait to hear what Danielle has to say about it because I, what I see is that it's almost an, a, a job for a lot of these kids that they're on these social apps, but it has to do with the quantity of relationships that they have. How many friends do they have? How many people are they having touch points with? What is their snap score or their snap streak or who's following them on these on these social quote unquote apps but there really isn't a connection authentically with them in these relationships which i feel directly correlates to the fact that they feel very lonely and empty and not very loved and appreciated on their authentic self because that's not what we're asking them to put out there. We're asking them to put out their kind of that best version of themselves when, they, when they're posting on there. And so it's not their authentic self and it's not really who they are. So that's really, from my standpoint, what I see. And Danielle, what's your opinion on um, why younger generations feel lonelier today than older generations? Yeah, so I get asked this question a lot. How on earth can young people be lonely when we're more connected than we ever have been? Uh, definitely through social media and other digital avenues, but also even in real life, there are so many ways that we can be in the same room and connected to so many people at the same time. And a lot of my work is dispelling this idea that even when young people are in the same room with others, they necessarily feel connected with them, right? So Lisa highlighted that it's not necessarily about quantity, but it's about quality. And a huge part of, I think, the myth around loneliness is people don't necessarily understand the true definition of loneliness, which is a feeling that even when you might be surrounded by people, you're not getting to the level where you feel connected to them. And that's what we're hearing from so many young people today, that even when they're on a college campus or integrated into their high schools and really actively connecting with people on social media and in real life, they're not actually feeling like those connections are meaningful and supporting their own wellness. So I do think that generally is a massive phenomenon in the United States today. I am not so quick to entirely blame technology or social media for that. There are definitely some clear ways in which the integration of social media in the lives of young people probably isn't helping. You definitely notice groups of teenagers today just all standing around in a room together, all on their phones. And you, you got to believe that that's not helping people make deeper connections in real life. But it's not as simple as if people are on social media more, they feel more lonely. There's a much more deep kind of integrated, nuanced relationship. And we've done some research at Hope Lab to look at that a little bit more deeply. Awesome. And what has your research um, suggested so far? Or can you speak a little bit on the research that Hope Lab has conducted? 
Sure. So at Hope Lab last year, we conducted a national survey of over 1,400 adolescents and young adults aged 14 to 22. And in contrast to some of the major research that some of the research you cited that suggests that more uh, amount of social media use is associated with loneliness, we actually found the opposite. Lonelier people were not using social media more frequently. And that just highlights that there's a little bit of contradiction in some of the studies out there. We're seeing similar contradictions around um, relationships with social media use and depression and anxiety as well. It's not just as simple as if you're on social media more, you have stronger mental health problems. And it's certainly not as simple as social media might be causing these problems. Instead, we're actually seeing some more nuanced differences in the the way social media is used by lonely young people compared to those who don't feel lonely. So for example, in our survey, the lonelier folks said that they were having a lot of negative experiences when they were using social media. So they reported that they had more negative comments on the posts that they posted to social media. And this is any social media that they used. They often felt like people were doing better than they were on social media. They reported more likely to feel like they were being trolled on social media compared to those who weren't lonely. So it's not to say that trolling is necessarily causing folks to be lonely. I mean, it's a horrible feeling to be trolled, no doubt. Um, it's a horrible feeling to feel like your comments aren't, uh, you're not, your posts aren't getting commented on, but that we don't know that that necessarily is causing loneliness. It's just a correlation because it's also the case that folks who are feeling extremely lonely might be more likely to feel or notice that their posts aren't getting commented on. So we do really have to kind of dig deeper and understand what the data we have show us without immediately seeking to vilify social media at the outset. There were also some real positive opportunities in the area of social media and loneliness. Folks who were lonely in our survey reported that using social media helped them feel less alone and they described that they were feeling happier also while they were using social media. So if we can support using social media for lonely students to our lonely young people to feel more connected to others, that may be a way to reduce loneliness on a societal level, but we've got to get there. Mm -hmm. Lisa, do you deal with patients that do suffer from loneliness and technology or have that kind of um, overlap? Yeah, so I do. I have a clinical practice uh, and I see teenagers and I see families and adults. Uh, I also go into schools and I have a program that works with how to teach teenagers um, how, kind of how to be a good digital citizen. And so the Digital Citizen Academy really teaches them exactly what, what Danielle is talking about. It's like technology shouldn't be something that we're afraid of or that we're scared about. And I really fully believe that, and maybe, you know, Danielle, we can talk about this offline a little bit, but like, I really do feel that my issue is we have to empower our children to understand the rules. So what, what you see is if I go into a school, I had went into a school that had 950 teenagers and they had you know, 72% of all their infractions that were going to the office were related to technology. And then there was a huge issue that happened with a sexting incident at this middle school. 
I did one training with the the parents and we did one lesson plan with the kids on here's what you should and shouldn't know about what the choices you're making online. And here's how the, the rules play out for the social media and the industry themselves. And here's what you should know. They reduced the, the number of infractions down to 35%, like more than half. Like those kids, the minute you empower them with the information and you empower them to understand the good and the bad and the ugly, in my opinion, and I think that this is what Danielle's research is getting to, then they have a fighting chance to be able to say, I have some control over this. And I agree with Danielle. Like I, I look, I've been threatened on, on social media. My life has been threatened. I've been told um, that I am like nothing more than a computer generated like image that is like a robotic AI speaking person. Like, I mean, I've been apparently trolled. Um, and part of it is like, you know, I go at it. Um, I, I choose not to feel that way because I understand the game, right? I choose to feel like if I'm going at it and that's what I teach the kids that I work with and I talk to and, what the program is, is is probably very similar to what Hope Lab is trying to generate. And I would love to team up and, and get some of her data because I think we have to be very careful on the research that comes out that might have an N of 20 that's support, supported and sponsored by the industry themselves. So I'm very careful to look at, you know, who are the people that are putting data out there and what are we presenting to the public um, and how are we actually giving that empowered, inspired feeling back to those kiddos that are using it and that young generation that need it. And you, you mentioned that you work with parents. Say if a parent is listening to this and they think, I don't want my child to suffer the negative consequence or I want my child to have a healthy relationship with technology, what advice would you give them or what rules would you say, all right, here's some steps to, to ensure that your child has a healthier relationship with technology? Well, number one is just balance and recognizing that it's a tool. Right. So I feel like just like, you know, we're not going to walk around and carry a shovel everywhere we go every day because there might be a hole that we want to dig. Right. Social media and technology is we are carrying that around every day. Right. And, and even though it's a tool that we don't have to use it all the time. And I think that that's the burden of what I see this younger generation not understanding that it, it literally can be a tool to connect you with those people that give you that authentic love and compassion and support in your life. It doesn't have to be something that you feel like you have to compete on. And it doesn't have to be something you feel burdened to jump in and put your face out there when there's no purpose for it. So I really do feel like the most important message I can tell people is understand that it is a tool and that you should have balance, that online offline balance of having like both and, and not looking at it as a burden is probably the most important messaging that I give. That's good advice. And I have to say you, you first touched on something which really did stick with me when you said about like the sense of putting your best self out there. We can connect with almost a prodigious amount of people through social networks, but yeah, we still have this sensation of loneliness. And I think maybe that does come from like what you said, from my opinion anyway, of people constantly putting their best self out there. And when you just have a constant stream or newsfeed of seeing your friends or people you know, and they're all demonstrating their best life, naturally in comparison, you're gonna think, oh, my life's crap. Like, I, I don't have that many friends. I don't have that, that great lifestyle. 
And perhaps that's the, I suppose, the most poisonous aspect of it. And I'll just add, if it's okay. Yeah, certainly. Go ahead. I'd be happy to jump in and say when young people are feeling depressed or anxious or exceedingly lonely, the tendency to compare themselves to others is heightened. So they're going to feel even worse than they already would about scrolling through their news feeds and seeing the glamorous life of their friends, or it will impact them even more when they post something and only a few people like it, right? Those at the core, there's a reason why Facebook and Instagram are now talking about getting rid of likes, the number of likes posts get altogether. It's because it really can instill particularly bad feelings in folks who aren't depressed, but in young people who are already experiencing negative emotions, it's particularly bad. So it's it's really contributing to a lot of problems in younger people. And we have also talked openly at Hope Lab to teens about how they feel when they use social media. So get some real nuanced reactions about what are the kinds of things that make people feel good and bad on social media. And folks who struggle with depression do tell us that when they're not feeling good, they know that it's really bad for them to be on social media. So talking, you know, jumping into what Lisa said about empowerment, the importance of helping young people feel empowered in their use of social media, if they can know in advance, I'm not feeling great right now and say, wow, this is probably not the best time for me to jump on Instagram, then that's really a win. And do you have any advice of parents if they are listening, like what rules you would suggest that they, they lay out or perhaps are very conscious of with their children? Yeah, I mean, for younger children, parents really can control their children's access to all different kinds of social media. And that includes both, you know, traditional kinds of social media, um, TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and the other kinds of social media platforms that young people are on. But I also want to add social gaming into this conversation because it's a place where children are having more and more social interactions digitally. The platforms and the avenues in which young people are connecting with others and perhaps having negative experiences and talk to them really openly about what those experiences are, whether they've seen or heard about bad things happening to them or their friends. And then as kids get older and the parents have less control on a daily basis over how much time they're spending on social media, just really having open conversations about how teens are feeling when they're using it and whether they might want to consider making a choice not to use it as much or not to use it in certain situations. Again, supporting empowerment. I'm not, I have to admit, I'm not that well versed in um, how impactful gaming is in the sense of like a sensation of loneliness. I always would have thought that it would bring people together or unite them more because there's a sense of like what teamwork, I suppose, if they're gaming. I'm not a gamer. I haven't been since I was like a teenager. So it's, this, gaming has changed for, since then. But from what I see of it, it seems like it's a very social experience do you think that there's more positive emotions or sensations someone can get from gaming or do you think that it's equal to the internet in there is that there's the good there's the bad and there's a real variety there daniela i definitely think it's a ladder <laughs> it's not uh, simply all good or all bad um so gaming a big difference between the gaming industry and what teens have access to today and what they did 
a generation ago, is that games are not only more engaging and sticky uh, and beautiful, but they're also so much more social. And so on the one hand, that can promote social connections where, you know, young people can come home and essentially have a friend time, you know, have connections with their real life friends or perhaps meet other people. And that could potentially be supportive for folks who would otherwise feel really lonely. And there are some certainly some positive uh potential aspects there. But there are really also some key challenges. Uh, Games are also really addictive, honestly. I mean, the video game industry knows how to make it so that it's hard to leave games. And that means we're definitely seeing teens whose lives are completely enmeshed in video games, and it's really hard for them to stop. And the social nature of it actually just makes that harder. So for some teens, um, they're gaming so much that they're not doing the other things that they need to do to be successful in life. And that includes having real life interactions, but also potentially get schoolwork done and participate in extracurricular activities and things like that. And I think that's really not a great thing on average. So, you know, parents really need to be aware of this and talk about how um, what the right amount of integration into their homes social gaming will have and be really open about it and set rules if necessary. Yeah, that's that's one thing that I do know about gaming. It's definitely addictive. I think um, everyone can relate to that to some extent, Well, no matter what kind of game they get into. <laughs> social media aside and gaming aside, uh, Lisa, do you think there are other forms of technology that are increasing our sensations of loneliness? Well, I think um, if I can just comment one quick thing on the gaming part. Certainly, please go ahead. I actually did a TED Talk and talked about my own personal experience at nine years old where I literally could not put down an Atari controller until I got every single jewel in Pitfall at the time. Did you do it? Which literally, I did. and I. But it took me six hours and my grandmother patiently stood behind me and when I was done called me into her room and she said I want to have a conversation with you about addiction and I want you to know about your parents and I think it's really important that we I think just to add to what Danielle said is like everything she said is absolutely correct the stickiness of the engagement the the colors are great the 24-7 access if you have any aspect of addiction in your family history Right. You are going to be more predetermined to be that kid that is going to have a hard time turning it off. And I think that it's great if you're a magical unicorn and you have no addiction in your family history. I, you know, fantastic. But I do think that it's definitely something that we need to be really, really cautious of. And um, what I see in my practice, obviously, which is biased, um, and I'm sure what Danielle sees in at Hope Lab is those kids that are talking about it. Um, but we do have an issue with the, the addiction and tapping into that potential and games definitely do that. So you, your question about other forms of technology, not techno, not gaming and not um, social media. I think anything, if we talk about technology of anything with a screen, right, it, which anything that is innovative and new is going to be something that we are drawn to, right? We're creative human beings. We are looking for things that are novel and new and, and challenging to us. But when you add in that screen and you add in the ability to give that attention to the brain, which to me, like I'm a kind of a neuro nerd person where I'm looking at how does that set that um, dopamine reward system on fire? How do we, you know, engage that um, amygdala in our brain? Like, how are we doing things with technology? And I think that there's a lot of things that are 
up and coming, the AI interfacing with like these robotics, um, the ability to code and create change um, and have control over that is very, I think, interesting for kids. And it gives them a sense of, of power where I've seen it go both really, really well, where I've got kids that are coding and doing things that are super innovative and helping them do, manage and organize their academic studies. And I have kids that are like basically learning how to hack and create mayhem and applications and things like that. And, you know, basically getting like suspended from school. So I think that there's, there's again, like when that happens, it creates that feeling of shame um, for the kids that are making the bad choices, which make them feel not as good as everyone else, which increases their loneliness or their isolation from peers. And again, if, and on the positive side, if they're going in and they're being super creative and they're getting awards and recognition and things like that, you might have some sense of jealousy from peers, which isolate them and create kind of that loneliness. There's again, there's like the good and the bad and having that balance. And it just boils down to me that I don't think that we can blame technology for all of it. I think that we have to kind of get get back into center and look at our social emotional training of our society and our kids specifically. Um, and how do we increase the ability to understand how do we show compassion and love and acceptance in this world with and without technology? Danielle, is there any other technology which you, you have some concern over amplifying the sensations of loneliness? Well, I mean, we have just gotten, and we as a society have gotten so much better at understanding how to make technology sticky and um, how to design so that people will get into and be as immersed in technological solutions as possible. You know, I live and work in San Francisco and there it's the heart of an industry that is just continuing to pour so, so much money into designing for immersion. And I, uh, I continue to see that even as more money and energy and interest is flowing into the field of digital mental health, a core question is, you know, how can we use technology to help people? But also, how do we make everything from therapy to wellness interventions, mindfulness, et cetera, more as sticky as possible? So as long as that's still happening, technology is not necessarily designed to help us feel less lonely, right? I mean, it's inherently people are going to be more and more in it. And things like virtual reality and technology that's designed to really just immerse us entirely will probably, they're going to continue to exist, only get more interesting and not necessarily promote connections in the real world. So, you know, Hope Lab is working on an app to address the high rate of loneliness among college students. And we're going to launch our app called Nod in a pilot test on one college campus this fall. So we're in the early phases, but one of our theories is that if we bring what we know about how to support people making social connections in the real world to them through their phones, but ask them to get off their phones and go out take challenges that we think will promote people making stronger ties to others in the real world, and then come back, process that being hard sometimes with a compassionate lens, and to do so digitally, which is still very comfortable for folks, then we hope and believe that that will help people feel less lonely. 
So, you know, we're optimistic in this space. We do believe that there are opportunities to use technology to reduce loneliness. And that's an empirical question. And I look forward to be able to share some results of our trial uh, in the winter. I'd definitely be interested in seeing how that goes. And that kind of brings me on to one of the last points that I wanted to make, and hopefully it's quite a positive one. Um, but for essentially, I, my, so, my favorite social media is Reddit. And I don't know if either of you <laughs> use it, but I love it yes. because yep. it produces communities. And I think one, I once heard a quote which sums it up perfectly, for me at least anyway. It says, if Facebook is people you know talking about things that you don't like, then Reddit is people you don't know talking about things that you do like. Yeah. And that really is, that perfectly sums up for me. And one of the ones that I um, I love to read is uh, uh, Reddit Psychology. Mm-hmm. I, I think you, you touched on something, Lisa. You said something that really made me smile. You said like you're a, a neuro nerd was it or uh, something like that yeah, yeah i nerd, love that. Uh-huh. that immediately as soon as you said that i was like bingo that's 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 the type of nerd i am like i finally have a label for it <laughs> <laughs> i think we're all a bunch of neuro nerds right, I think I think so. I love, well to be fair that's basically this podcast i should maybe change the name of this podcast to neuro nerds or something that might be a better fit but right. i go on there a lot and i remember seeing one study on there which said that reddit was able to help people with um, depression in the sense that the reddit depression forum and you see this all the time um, ask reddit is another one of my favorites and there's a lot of questions on there or it's very frequent where someone will ask like people with depression how are you doing today or how are you feeling today and then someone will answer and they'll say oh i feel and they'll they'll give a genuine answer and then below it will be like um, a flood of comments saying oh keep your head up or you're doing really well or i was then that situation and it's so inspiring to see that like we hear so much about trolls about people being nasty and there's just so much crap on the internet where it's just like people being horrible like a cesspit and then i loved coming to reddit and these kind of places to see people just genuinely being nice to each other and supporting each other and one study did reveal that people who use reddit or were on reddit generally improved and it said that their i can't remember how they measured it but i think it was their language or the language they used or it was it was like um, their, their text was analyzed essentially throughout time. I don't know how it was conducted, but I do remember the results. That it was pretty positive. And I wanted to put it to you both, like how can technology be used to reduce loneliness? This is obviously one example, but Lisa, would you be able to explain and give a, share with us like how you think technology can be used to reduce loneliness? Well, I think, you know, you just gave the great example. I mean, I love Reddit. I'm, I'm sure Daniel loves Reddit. Um, I think that Hope Lab and her app is like a great effort to continue to like create innovative ways of how we use what people are already doing, right? We like to go online. We like to create. We love to read. We love to like pull in that information. I think that one of the things that I work on a lot is that kind of internal sense um, of control, like the internal locus of control, we call it in psychology. But how do we get internally validated instead of externally validated? And that's the, I think that the challenge with what technology has done for us is we're always constantly looking for what everybody else is doing versus like feeling comfortable and confident and safe in our own space, in our own mind. And so apps that are meditative, I don't want to like name them out, but like meditative apps or things that like teach you how to breathe or slow down and 
and take those things. I'm sure that the Nod app will similarly do those things where it just really kind of refocuses you into what should be more important. Um, and I think that it's learning that about yourself and in teaching people. And that goes back to inspiring and empowering our users of technology to understand that. And I think when we educate them and we give them that tool, it is as simple as understanding that for themselves. Because now I'll give a funny story of, of being in a school and a, and a teenager came up to me after I spoke and said how she said, I just wanted to come up and tell you how brave I think you are. And of course, I had just spoken in front of 2,800 high school students, and I was feeling very brave at the same time, because that's not, that's a very um, large audience of teenagers in one space. Um, and she's, and I said, well, thank you. I said, you know, I, I said, I love teenagers, and I love hearing from you all. And she said, no, she said, I just thought it was brave because I Googled you and, and none of your posts that you put online have any sort of photo filters. And I think it's so brave of you <laughs> to put yourself out there so authentic. <laughs> and I was like, in my head, I was like, wait, I should know that there's photo filters and maybe I should, you know, but in my head, I was like, no, that's me. Right. Like, and I have this like sense of, you know, like I am who I am and this is just, and it is me and I'm okay putting myself out there as that. And so that's what I mean by like technology. We can teach our kids that. That's what we do in, in our program. And, and that, that's certainly what I'm sure Danielle is going to be doing with her new app. You know, that would be my sense. And I, I think there's a lot of good out there um, from Reddit to, to meditative apps to what's coming on the horizon. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> and Danielle, would you be able to, I'm not sure if I fully understood your app. Would you be able to explain it to me as if like, imagine that it's available to download for anyone that's listening. Imagine if like I just downloaded it. Could you explain to me like how I would go about and use it and give an example of like how I might go and use it in my day-to-day -day life? Sure. So um, if people are interested in hearing more about what Nod will do, they can go to heynod.com or to Hope Lab's website, hopelab.org. Um, but if someone were to have just downloaded the Nod app, we would ask them, what are their social goals in college? And this is often going to be people who have just arrived at college. It's their first year. Um, it's a time when people have really high expectations about meeting their best friends for life. They hear about how their parents have done that, or they have ideas about what college looks like from movies, TV, etc. They might perhaps have really inflated ideas about how easy it will be to make friends, but often they get there and they find that it's a lot harder than they think it will be. So our app encourages people to do mini missions that are challenges. They encourage students to skillfully socialize out there in the real world. So challenges can look like walk down the college campus this week, look five people in the eye and say hello, or dare to leave your dorm room open each day for an hour this week and just see who pops over. Um, so things that are designed to promote social connections in the real world. And then I mentioned that things don't always go as well as people might want. So you could walk down the college campus, say hi to someone, and they don't even look up from their phone, right? So there are times in which there are setbacks or um, people might not feel so great. And particularly lonely people might be more susceptible to that. So our app also encourages people to reflect on how those challenges go and to reduce self-criticism about it. So if someone doesn't look you in the eye to question, is it something about you or might it be that that person was just really immersed in what they were doing? And those reflections are designed to build resilience so that people can still go out there, try it again 
and um, feel like if they put forth effort, they'll be able to make more friends a little bit more easily in the future. So that's our idea. And, um, you know, there aren't a lot of interventions out there to reduce loneliness. We kind of know for a long time, we've known how to support people who have clinical depression, anxiety, PTSD, and other clinical disorders, right? But loneliness is more challenging. And so we've had to be innovative here. And we're drawing upon literature from cognitive behavioral therapy, self-compassion theory, and a couple other theories to say how we think loneliness can be addressed through an app. And we never do anything at Hope Lab unless we've actually tested whether it actually can have an effect on the health outcomes we expect. And we look forward to seeing whether engagement with Nod is going to reduce loneliness. Um, but we, we think we've designed something that's engaging and that people really will, if they use, will be able to kind of have more social connections in the real world. I think that sounds awesome. I actually, one episode which I'm really contemplating of doing is about the gamif- gamification of exercise. So basically like how Fitbits and other apps have turned, like doing exercise into like a game, like how many steps can you do? How many points can you do? And whether or not that will encourage people to... Um, lead healthier lifestyles it sounds like the app's kind of like a similar thing it's almost like a gamification of like social exercises in the sense of like it makes you more like oh I go, I'm gonna go do this activity or I'm gonna achieve this so it kind of like gamifies that which I think um yeah could really stand to tap into I suppose if someone's really into technology then it'll really tap into that side of it while also like allowing them to strengthen yeah their, their social skills so yeah that sounds awesome I'd I'd be very interested on hearing on how that goes. But on that note, this conversation has been awesome and I love this. But I'm sure there are many people that are listening that still want to hear more or want to know more about your work. If people do want to follow you on social media or anywhere else, how can people stay in contact with the work that you're doing? Lisa, would you like to tell us first? Sure. I um, post all, we post on Twitter at Dr. Lisa Stroman. I also have a company called Digital Citizen Academy where I write blogs a couple a week. Usually it's me venting about some sort of issue with technology and um, trying to help people like kind of navigate that space. And they can also obviously on Facebook, Dr. Lisa Stroman, I have my own page there as well. Fantastic. Danielle? And at Hope Lab, people can come to our website, hopelab.org, to see how we're using technology to support adolescent health and emotional well-being broadly. If they'd like to learn about what we're doing in loneliness, it's hopelab.org slash destroy the myth. And our Nod app is at heynod.com. And I'm on Twitter at Danielle Ramo. Thank you so much. This has been a really enjoyable episode. And uh, I really look forward to hearing about the work that you continue doing in the world to help tackle loneliness and technology. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Weird Wide Web. This week's Weird Wide Web story comes from The Verge, which recently published an article stating that 100,000 free AI-generated headshots put stock photo companies on notice. The novel company, Icons 8, is offering a resource of 100,000 AI-generated faces to anyone that wants them completely royalty-free. Many of these images have some work to do before they are completely convincing, but there are many that are difficult to distinguish from images licensed by stock photo companies. On our previous episode of Deep Fakes, we highlighted the darker side of AI-generated fakes, 
However, this seems to be a win, as long as you're not a stock photo company, obviously. And in addition to this breakthrough, MIT Technology Review recently reported that deepfakes could anonymize people in videos by generating faces that match the expressions of anonymous subjects to grant them privacy without losing their ability to express themselves. So that's kind of a good news story to put a smile on your face. And if it doesn't, well, AI can just generate one on it anyway. That's our show. Thank you for listening. It's always a pleasure. And I hope you learned something from this. To stay up to date with everything we do at The Sociable, then you can subscribe to our newsletter. It's easy. Go to sociable.co, scroll down. Just on the right-hand side, past the podcast, you'll see an option to leave your name and email and we'll always keep you up to date. Alternatively, you can follow us on Spotify or subscribe to our YouTube channel where we publish all our podcasts. Thanks so much and have a great day.